You guys can go off to your time together. I know it's been a difficult week for many people staying in this local area. I think our church office hasn't had electricity, which is over the road here in Winston Avenue, since Wednesday afternoon from half past two. And as I watched the rugby last night, for I think a good 70 minutes of it, I knew that there was church the next morning. So I was like, Lord, this is going to affect church, depending on how this thing goes. And it wasn't going the way we were hoping it would go. But I was sitting there thinking, oh, we're going to lose. And I need to stand up in church and remind people, welcome back to the real world. Like we live on this high of what's happening with our rugby team and it's all about this trophy and being world champions. But if we lose, if we win the trophy next week, we still live in this situation. We still live in a, maybe a local area like this that hasn't had electricity from Wednesday and it can be discouraging. And as we then won, and the excitement and this like never say die attitude. I, I, I try to get ready for bed going, Lord, help us have that same attitude in this country that says never say die. We fight till the end. We are faithful to the end. We don't give up. Because how easy it would have been for those box to just be like, listen, it hasn't gone our way. It's been raining. The, the British are way better in a wet game like that. And nothing has worked of ours, the up and unders. It was just a tough game to watch. And I sat there going, Lord, please, for this nation, help us never give up. And then it started to rain. I don't know how many of you had some rain, but in my area where I stayed, I was like, what is going on? The weather forecast didn't predict any rain. And there was this pouring of this rain outside. I was like, God, let us never give up. Would you pour your spirit on this nation again? Let not the springboks be the center of our hope, but may Jesus be the center of our hopes. Because when we put our hope in a rugby team and, that, and Pollard misses that kick, could have missed that kick, and we could have lost by two points, our hope would have been shattered. And imagine that we put our hope in Jesus, saying, Jesus, you are king of this land. Pour out your spirit and do a work in our nation again. So that today I'm going to talk about the reluctant servant. And I said with the ladies being on camp this weekend, we're going to finish our 2 Timothy series next Sunday. So I'm speaking at a conference next weekend in Port Alfred, and their theme for the conference is the burning bush. So I'm going to share a little bit about what has been on my heart when we talk about a burning bush. So if you have your Bibles here, you can turn to Exodus chapter 3. And as you turn to Exodus chapter 3, let me just paint some context as to where we are in the story of Moses. Moses is 80 years old in Exodus chapter 3. Now for those of you who know the story of Moses, his start of his journey wasn't easy. Pharaoh had said that all the Hebrew newborns had to be thrown into the Nile River and drowned. And his mother couldn't bear it, so, so she put Moses in this basket and sent him down the Nile. And it was Pharaoh's daughter who finds him and adopts him and raises him, him up in the palace. And as Moses spends his first 40 years in the palace, I'm sure at the ripe age of 40, Lucky, can you turn me down a little bit, please? The ripe age of 40, he must have been feeling, God, this is prime time. I am in my prime. Use me to free my people. Get them out of the slavery and abuse of Egypt. And he thought he was going to be the man. 
It says in, in Acts 2, 7 verse 22, Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was powerful in both speech and action. He was powerful in speech and action. He was ready to say, God, here I am, use me to deliver my people out of Egypt. But who knows, God's timing isn't always our timing. And at the age of 40, he goes out one day to visit his people and he sees an Egyptian abusing or beating one of his fellow countrymen. And while he thinks no one is looking, he goes and he kills the Egyptian and he hides his body and he buries his body. And he thinks if there's ever a sign to my people that I am serious about this delivering them out of this land, look at what I've just done. They must believe in me that I'm willing to show that I'm willing to do this. The next day he goes and he sees two, two Hebrew men fighting amongst each other and he goes to them and he says, what are you doing? Why are you behaving like this? We, we brothers. And the one turns to him, let me just read it, the one turns to him, the one that was in the wrong, and he, and he says, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? When Moses hears this, he realizes, wow, this act of murdering this guy wasn't a sign that I am for them, but yet he's turning it to be like, who are you? Why do you think you are our savior and our deliverer? And obviously Pharaoh gets news of this, so then Moses flees to the land of Midian. And he's now living in exile, rejected by Israel and ejected by Egypt, or exiled by Egypt. And he then goes and spends 40 years in the wilderness. So now you're 80, and you realize my prime time is gone. God, that was the moment. I was on form, I was educated, I was burning with a passion, and now he spends 40 years tending a flock. This was just an ordinary other day, taking the sheep to find some green pastures and obviously find some water. Nothing special about this day. But then we read in Exodus 3, verse 1, one day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now, who is the angel of the Lord? Many commentators believe that it is the pre-incarnate Jesus appearing to him in a blazing fire from the middle of the bush. And Moses stared in amazement. Now, it's, we're talking about the desert, the wilderness, where a burning bush wasn't a foreign thing. When it's so hot and dry, things just explode into flames. But this tree, this bush was not being consumed. So Moses stared in amazement, though the bush was engulfed with flames that didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go and see. And when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. God uses a burning bush to get his attention. What does God need to do to get your attention? What is it that has to happen in your life for God to say, hey, Jared, or yay, John, I want to do something through you and in you. Maybe it's being next to a loved one in a hospital room where, you, where God gets your attention. 
Or maybe like one of my close, or one of my friends that nearly died during COVID. And God saved him. And he asked the question, God, why is it that you spared my life? There was a moment where God got his attention. What is it? Maybe it was in a church meeting where you encountered God's physical presence and God marked you and changed you. What does God, what has God had to do in your life to get your attention? Elizabeth Barrett Browning said this, earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. There are moments in our everyday ordinary life where God is trying to get your attention. God has a purpose and a mandate. He wants to do something in you and through you. But it's only those that see are those that take off their shoes. The rest just see it as an everyday ordinary life. And Moses responds and says, here I am. And then God says to him, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for you are standing on holy ground. This was not any special ground. Why was it a holy ground moment? Because he was in the presence of God. And there was a sign of him taking his sandals off because he encountered God's space. See, the wilderness where he was was just an ordinary place, our space. But yet God revealed his space to Moses. And it says that, or it then says in verse six, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. A good response to encountering the, the manifest presence of God. I think we would all fall on our knees and realize the sin in our life when we encounter a holy God. But you see, it wasn't always like this in God's manifest presence. And I want to take you back again to just some context to where I want to take you going forward. But we see right in the beginning, right in Eden, which was known as the Garden Temple. Genesis 1 and 2, when you read ancient Near Eastern literature, the language that is used of the Garden of Eden is that God was building himself a temple, a dwelling place. Eden is God's dwelling place. In Genesis 3 verse 8, and, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife were in communion in God's presence. It seemed like God's space and our space was one. They were one in God's space. God's dwelling presence dwelled fully in humanity in the garden temple of Eden. His domain and our domain were one. And we all know how the story goes, but there is the fall in Genesis 3. And then there's the separation of his presence. Humans prioritize their own knowledge and power over God, choosing to define good and evil for themselves. And God banished them from his garden temple, creating two separate incompatible domains, his space and our space. You can read Genesis 3 and see how our, our space became separate from God's space, how heaven on earth became heaven and earth. And it says God banished them from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And then we see this great mission 
this rescue plan through a person named Abraham, through the nation of Israel, and then later by the church. But this is the hope of the Bible story that God's domain and our domain will be one again. All things will be made new. Death will be replaced with life and the whole earth will be recreated, be a recreation of the garden and the glory of the temple will fill the whole earth. There is this desire for God's space and our space to intersect again. And if you read from Genesis, you'll read these moments where God starts doing this. And one example is Jacob when he has this dream of heaven invading earth. And we learn that God's space wasn't entirely separate from our space. Jacob had this dream of this, not a ladder, not a little wooden ladder, but these brick staircases coming down onto earth. The staircase was not attached to a temple or to a building. It was stairs resting on earth extended from the sky. And this was showing that, that there was now God's domain and humanity's domain intersecting. And it says, behold, the angel of God were descending and, and ascending. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And he wakes up from this dream and he says this, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't even know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is the space. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. God's space and our space. Could it be that God's dominion, the human's dominion, could overlap again? And God was on a mission to reunite heaven and earth. And then we see God give the people of Israel the tabernacle. This was the first long-term overlap between heaven and earth since the Garden of Eden. The word tabernacle means dwelling place. The Israelites had a, a piece of heaven that went with them. Now, yes, it wasn't accessible to everyone. Not everyone could go into it, but it was the beginning of God's invasion of human space. It was small and, as I said, limited, but it carried the manifest presence of God. God's presence was constantly accessible to his people. And even though it was limited, it was exciting and it was there for the people. When you study this tabernacle, it depicted the pictures of a garden. Entering the tabernacle was supposed to feel like entering a garden, just as Eden was that, that space, that garden temple. And God's presence filled the tabernacle with fire and with a cloud and it obviously led them through the wilderness. And then Solomon goes and he builds the temple. And then we know we've got the holies of holies, God's presence behind a curtain. And again, the high priest can only go into it like once a year. And it was scary, they would tie a rope around his leg just in case there was any sin in his life. God's space and our space. We had his temple. And, and Solomon said, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens and even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. And then we see Jesus coming. And John 1 describes Jesus as the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace 
and truth. This word says he tabernacled amongst us. The word tabernacle means dwelling. Jesus, the presence of God, the kingdom of heaven comes and breaks through back on earth. And then we see this about Jesus. And this goes back to that story about that vision that, that um, he had of the staircase from heaven. Then Jesus said, I tell you the truth, you will all see heaven open and the angels of God coming up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. Jesus is the one that says, I will tear this temple down and I will rebuild it in three days. Jesus is calling himself the temple. He is saying, claiming that God dwells in him. The kingdom of heaven had arrived. What is interesting about Jesus being the presence of God is he didn't stay in a little sanctified, clean space. He was in amongst the world, in amongst the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the lepers. He wasn't just happy to hide in a temple. He was out in the everyday, ordinary space. So then we go back to the story of Moses and how this is applicable to you. Moses, God reveals himself as I am the God, your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face and he looked to God. And then the Lord God said to him, I have certainly seen the oppression of the people in Egypt, and I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is the land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the rest of the ites are now living. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harsh the Egyptians abused them. And then he gives this commission, now go, and I am sending you to Pharaoh, and you must lead my people the people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? And God answered, I will be with you, and this will be your sign, and I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. God then says, I have seen the cry of my people. And he commissions Moses. Encounters with God's presence isn't just a moment of nice tingly feelings and warm fuzzy feelings. It is an opportunity for God to get your attention and empower you and commission you to do something that he has planned for you. Yes. Moses comes with his questions, his doubt. Who am I to lead the people out of Israel, out of Egypt? And if you read this passage, he comes with all these excuses. Man, I've got a stutter. I'm not good enough. I'm not ready. God, you missed the opportunity when I was ready, when I was 40 years old. Now I'm 80, and I've been wandering around this desert, getting fat and lazy, looking after sheep. Why would I ever go back to the people that rejected me? And I was ready to lead them, that um, Israelite turned to him and say, who do you think you are to be our savior, the one that leads us out? 
and God places a calling on his life. And he says, I've got a plan and a purpose for you. And God promises him and says, I will be with you. See, Moses must have felt confused and he must have felt surprised. And he must have felt like, God, me? You want to use me to go and lead these people out of Egypt? See, our destiny is when our gifts and our passions collide with the brokenness of this world. Going back to that graph that I'm giving you, fast forward to the day of Pentecost when Jesus says, you know what, it's better for me to go because I wanna send you my, my spirit. And I just don't want the Holy Spirit to be on you. I want the Holy Spirit to be in you. And we see the day of Pentecost where God marked them with a fiery flame above their heads and the Spirit of God came and dwelt in people and He empowered them to say, you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There is Peter a moment ago, he's denying Jesus three times and now he's full of the Holy Spirit and he's able to witness and he's able to preach and say, these people are not drunk at nine in the morning. This is the presence of God being manifested in his people, in his people and in this moment. We all know the store, this, this analogy that we've spoken of many times in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 to 20. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The reason why I'm giving you this context and this picture is to highlight God's space and our space that was one in Eden and how sin separated God's space and our space. And then God in this process of bringing it back together through the tabernacle and then through the temple and then through Jesus. And then when Jesus says, I need to go because I need the Holy Spirit to come. And then the Holy Spirit just doesn't come, but the Holy Spirit comes and now dwells, not in the temple, but in this temple. And He now comes and He fills you and I with His presence, empowers you. There is creation, and what God's going to do is He's going to bring the new creation. There is humanity in Israel, and now we see the new humanity. And there God used the remnant, and now God is using the church. And it all comes back to that center thing of Jesus coming, the change in our history. Jesus' purpose is to bring heaven to earth. One day the new Jerusalem will come and the new heaven and new earth. But until that day, we have a purpose and a mandate. This is why I called this sermon the reluctant servant. Because God's presence is not just going to sit in a church building. It's not just going to sit in a building like this where we can come and experience it and walk out. What God does is He comes and He places His Spirit inside of His children. And He tells you to go and do what Jesus did. Go into the world and be carriers of my presence. You are a carrier of his presence. And it's not again just to make you feel all warm and fuzzy and goosebumps and oh, God's presence is living in me. There is a commissioning and a purpose of it. And God has a plan and a purpose for you. 
Tony Fitzgerald always says that God so loved RMB that he sent Daniel to RMB. And God so loved Gerber Fresh that he sent Fred to Gerber Fresh. And God so loved Robin Hills Primary that he sent this person there. But let's be honest. Just as Moses came with his excuses, not me, God, pick someone else. Just as we all have our inadequacies and how we all feel like, and I have it, I'm like, God, there are more eloquent preachers, there are smarter people to lead, there are people with better gifts and talents than me. Why me in this role? Why you, in your brokenness and in your mess-ups and in your imperfections, why does God choose you and want to use you to advance his kingdom? Why does he have that much faith in us? Why did he have that much faith in Moses despite all of his excuses? And God's word to him was, I will be with you. And God puts his spirit in us and says, I am in you. I, it's not by your might, it's not by power, it's by God's spirit. See, God reveals to Moses who he is. He says, I am. When Moses says, who must I tell the people? Tell them, I am sent you. Moses has to realize who he is not to start realizing who God is. For all the shy people here this morning, for all the introverts, for all those people that say, not me, God. We serve the great I am. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the gateway. I am the good shepherd. As I said, I may not be the most eloquent speaker and I may not be the smartest and I may not be the most popular. But if you are available, if I am available to be used by God, he can use you in spite of you. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary purposes. See, it's time to ordain the ordinary. We do so knowing that the next great move of God may be this amazing outpouring of his spirit in the, in, the, in the body, in the church. But it may also be God pouring his spirit out on his children. That is a movement out of the church into the community. It's going to be a movement of the church into society, rewriting the story of education in our cities, health in our cities, and business in our cities. God is repositioning the church to reach the whole city with believers communicating, demonstrating, and celebrating the supremacy of Christ in every corner of culture. God is looking for someone who is available. You may be 13, 14 years old and God is saying, are you available to be used by me? And I sometimes think, think we get it so wrong, church, is we don't realize who lives inside of us. So we live ordinary lives. And we come to church expecting there to be some singing, 
and a good sermon and a good cup of coffee and a scone, but not coming to church expecting to encounter the living God, encounter His manifest presence. And I long for encounter with God's manifest presence when we gather like this. But I don't just live for those, those moments. I live for when God says, I want to empower you to go. And you speak to that Uber driver and you speak to that person, that co-worker, and you speak to that family member and you are the one that lays your hands on that person and God's power flows through you. And who knows, maybe you can see a sign and a wonder and a miracle and a prophetic word or a word of encouragement or the gift of healing. Maybe we need to start believing for that again. Not just the role of the pastor to be the one that prays and sees the work of God but ordaining the ordinary. So I go back to last night's moment. And I'm like, God, this country needs the ordinary to be ordained, to be carriers of your presence and to advance your kingdom. In these last days, as we spoke on last week, people's love will grow cold. There will be manifestations of evil and all that is wrong, the brokenness of this world, but God wants to pour His Spirit afresh on his children. And if you came to church going, I love just spectating and I love just watching, then this is the wrong Sunday to come to church. Because I'm trusting that God would come and fall afresh and empower every believer here today with his presence to go and be his hands and feet. You know, it was so precious. We, we went and had, my wife and I had some lunch with Roy and Esme. Roy and Esme, how old are you guys again? Sorry for asking this publicly. 82 and 79. And they stay in a retirement village. And they run this group for that, that community every Friday morning. And they sing some worship and they teach the Bible. You know what? If 80-year-olds don't have an excuse to get up and say, God, use me in this community that I live, then the 20-year-olds and the 30-year-olds and the 50-year-olds and the 13-year-olds don't have an excuse. Come on. Yes. Yeah. And the same presence that was on Jesus lives inside of you. And He will give you the words to say. Sometimes we just have to step out in faith, despite your fears, your inadequacies, your struggles with sin, your issues. And to say, God, here I am, use me for your kingdom and for your glory. So what will our tomorrows look like, church? What will your Monday be like? What does God have to do to get your attention? We can go into Monday talking about the book win and will probably be the conversation on Monday morning. But just maybe you'll have a sensitivity to his spirit to go and speak to that person that God has laid. Maybe you'll have the conviction of the Holy Spirit to send that WhatsApp message or make that phone call and be willing to step out and say, can I just pray for you today? Or go and give that person a hug and just demonstrate the love of Jesus. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't need to know. God knows and his spirit knows. Will you walk by His Spirit? Will you live for Him? Will you be carriers of His presence?
I'm going to ask the worship team to come back on stage and they're going to sing a song. And it's a song that many of us know called Oceans. Take me deeper to where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the water wherever you may call me. Spirit, lead me. I'm going to ask you to put your Bibles and your notepads away. And this is my favorite part about preaching, is I get to say what I feel God wanted me to say, and then I just say, okay, Holy Spirit, I know you've been doing a work as I've been speaking, but now it's time for you to move amongst God's people, through the pews and through the aisles, to come and ordain the ordinary. It starts with being a follower of Jesus. If you're sitting here today and you've never made Jesus your Lord and Savior, that's where it starts. It begins by saying, Jesus, I've missed the mark. My sin, I've fallen short of your standard. It's only you that can save me. And it's making Jesus your Lord, your master, and inviting him. And then there is the thing of, God pouring his spirit out. He identifies you by placing his Holy Spirit inside of you. And if you're a believer today, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And then we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit and continue being filled by the Holy Spirit. And those are these moments where we say, come Holy Spirit, let us encounter your presence again. Would you fill this cup to overflowing? Let me be full of you, Holy Spirit like a cup overflowing. And let's take this moment just as Moses did, where God says this is a holy moment. Take off your shoes, because you are in my presence. As usual,